Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Richest Men in Town podcast. I'm Mike Freeman, and along with my good friend and co-host, Tyler Gould, we're excited to welcome you to our little podcast project. Tyler and I are just a couple of middle-aged husbands and dads driven to live our best lives. We want to be better every day, so here we'll be sitting down with great people, not famous people, but great people that we admire, to learn their secret to living the rich life. Probably not the rich life you're thinking of. Our guests come in humbled and surprised at the invitation and hopefully leave feeling proud and grateful, realizing just how good they really have it. So pull up a chair, stay a while, and raise a glass with us as we toast our guests to the richest men in town. All right, Tyler Gould, another episode of the richest men in town. And this time I want to start things off a little different. Usually we jump in, the two of us, and we kind of uh, whet the listener's appetite with what they can expect from our guests. This time, our guest is Sam Borquez. He kills it, right? Yeah. He crushes it. But while we have a couple of hours with them, that's cool. When we cut tape, we continue recording and some amazing things came out of the after party, the post-show comments. Yeah. And I'd love to grab some of those post-show comments almost as a primer and throw it at the front of his episode. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. I think I think rather than you and I talk about what Sam says, let's let Sam in his own words talk about some things that are important to him uh, and share that with the listeners before we dive into the full episode. Yeah, so here's a little primer from Sam Borquez with his time on The Richest Men in Town. No. We didn't spend any time talking about faith or religion or any of those things, but I spent a lot of my life as a militant atheist. And when I woke up to the fact that that was just not a good life to live, um, I started paying attention to so many more messages. And that was another point in my life that humbled me a lot because a lot of the, just the core ideas of how the world revolves was kind of shattered when I was able to look at these words, thousands of years old, you know, and people can talk about whether they believe or they don't believe, but people can't convince me that there's no higher power and there's nothing guiding us along the way. And there's, there's yeah. nothing out there that makes a decision that we have it. Like it's, it's impossible to convince me that we are the end all be all on this planet. And so, all right. So I know that was a little out of ordinary for our listeners and that you may be wondering, you know, uh, why we did that. We, we just feel like that explains so much of what you're about to hear from Sam's life. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's a driven dude that impacts a lot of people's lives. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, I think that's important to understand uh, some of Sam's uh, beliefs that are important to him. Yeah, right. And I, I think the listener without that would be probably asking the question halfway through the episode, man, what's driving this guy? Yeah. Right. Where's where, where's Sam coming from as far as, you know, what what's in his heart and what he believes. So uh, to be fair to Sam, uh, to be true to the experience, uh, we really felt like we wanted to uh, to put that at the front. So I loved it. I don't know how you feel about Sam Borquez. I'm a huge fan, huge fan. It was so much fun. Yeah, and I know that our listeners are going to get a ton out of the, uh, the the things that he drops. So, Sam, thank you for your show up. Thank you for the time uh, to the family. Thank you for loaning Sam to us. To Mary's Pizza Shack, thank you for believing in a 16-year-old kid. He turned out all right. To our listeners, enjoy the lessons that you can pick up from your time listening to the path and the journey of Sam Borquez on The Richest Man in Town. That's where I'm at, man. So I, so I kind of feel like I, as, while I'm on this uh, alignment kick, I am going to moleskin it and just give myself a little more space. 
you know? Now, are you free, right? Do you, uh, do you, do you prompt it? Do you free, write? Like, what is the journaling? What does the journaling look like? Um, I like, I don't, I don't write like a self prompt. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like stream of consciousness. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what am I thinking? Like what's and, moving, right? What's yeah, moving. Ex- exactly. Yeah, exactly. I kind of, you know, honestly, I've, I'm, I sort of go back to the old, uh, the old spirit journal days, you know, where it's just like, what's, what's, what's kicking around, what thoughts are there, what, you know, I taught, I taught the elders quorum lesson on Sunday and we, and I taught from uh, lessons from Liberty jail, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was um, just this idea of temple experiences in difficult times. And so I kind of took a, an inventory of challenges like I, I went in the Wayback Machine, you know, and like started picking challenges that that are I at least viewed at one point in time as substantial. And then in that process, tried to identify God's hand in that in those trials. You know, so that was kind of a cool experience. So, I, you know, I mean, that so that's sort of like my that's my journaling, you know, it's like. Where, where's my head at? What am I reading? What's, you know, what, that's, that's what prompts me. Mm-hmm. So are you uh are you a list guy? You know, the task and the big three. And the, I mean, some of those, some of those thoughts from monk manual. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. I am a list guy. I do like lists. I mean, for me, it's like simplicity, you know, if I can be like, these five things or these 10 things or whatever. So yeah, I do that. I do that a lot. I have a lot of lists throughout my, my, uh, my volumes. Yeah. You know, here's the challenge is like, I actually think that there's some things on my list that, man, if I did them. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't know a hundred percent, man. Like let's, so let's, let's just, I'm going to start, I'm going to start using the richest men in town as a vehicle here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's how we're going to do this. Yeah. Let's hear we're it. at episode 72. Yeah. Right. The date is September 16th. Uh, Feliz Dia de la Independencia para Mexico. Mexico's I thought that was yesterday. Day. Was that yesterday? I think it's the 16th, man. Oh, all right. I thought, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I like it. Um, I'm going to tell you how much I weigh. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm with you, man. I, I like and every this. week you're going to give me an update. Yes. <laughs> oh, snap. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 We're just going to do this. And I can't remember if it was Jim Rome or Dan Patrick, but like when callers called in, they would give their height and their weight. Beefy. <laughs> right. One of those deals. <laughs> Come five, five, four, two sixty. Beefy, Beefy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> is that DP or is that yeah, that was D- yeah, no, that was DP for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so I don't need the sidebar and anic- I don't need the comments. Okay, right? no commentary. I don't okay. need the BMI. <laughs> okay, and I don't need you online cranking out the BMI index because I I hate that thing. Yeah, yeah, right? it's yeah, I hate that thing. So, totally inaccurate. Anyway, so 
False science. But I'm watching your freaking <laughs> face, all right? I'm watching your face when I okay. drop this number. Hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, go for it. All right, let's go. Uh, Mike Freeman, 5'11 and three quarters, 240.2. Okay, okay, okay. I, I, got, some you know work, what, I got some work to do. You, I'm but you know what? I, out there, all right? What I really appreciated was that you went 5'11 and three quarters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. Six foot in cleats. <laughs> <For certain. laughs> yeah maybe like on the muddy di- on the muddy the muddy game day cleats yeah right right, right yeah <laughs> yeah all right so yeah you gotta you gotta update the media guide when i wear those cleats yeah absolutely right? it's like russell wilson yeah so i'm coming in at 240.2 okay all right i am having some problems with the fork but eight consecutive weekdays at the y that's fantastic man Let's go, right? Let's Good go. You, so here's yeah. what we're going to do. I'm also going to give you one undone thing that by the next time I get together with you, we'll be done. Okay. Like, I, I feel like, like, I feel like um, this, this amount of peer pressure to participate in this since oh, I, you, I mean, did you want to drop some digits? I don't really want to. <laughs> 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 uh <laughs> yeah i don't know man it's a vulnerable space right it's a it is a space. vulnerable space and and i don't know that ireland wants to hear this you know what i mean hey, by the way yeah germany has passed ireland as the number two on the map 56 countries we're in brother 56 56 countries germany just recently something's going on in germany now things are moving inside of people and we're, and and we're big, right? We're, we're big, we're huge. We're right up there with Lederhosen, I think. Yeah, and I don't know what it is about our content, but we are <clears throat> landing in places of heavy alcohol consumption. Yeah, well, I would <laughs> I would think that it would make our show a little bit more enjoyable. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't say for sure, but. I'm feeling like that might be the case. That might be the case. I might yeah. be like, hey, these guys are really good after a couple of dark ones. Yeah. I mean, when <laughs> it's like a drinking game, right? There's some drinking game involved. <laughs> okay. Here's my one thing that's undone. And it's okay. so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. Here's okay. the beautiful thing. I don't know where the ghouls are at. I don't know okay. where you and Ricky are at. But Kelly doesn't listen to the show. Yeah, I don't think Ricky does either. <laughs> so this is actually creating a really safe place for me, right? <laughs> yeah, I can right. pretty much say some things and and until we go somewhere, you know, maybe a date night with another couple or we yeah. land in church somewhere on a Sunday, maybe somebody's like, hey, did you hear what Mike said yeah, on the about, show? About but, your favorite sweatpants? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Here's where I'm at. My okay. daughter's been in Philly for over seven months now. Okay. I thought in my mind I would write her a letter per month. One a month. Yeah. I'm yeah, still working on the first one, brother. The first. How long has she been out now? Seven okay. months. Right. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to like compile them and put them in a little, maybe a little, a book that she can have. Right. Well, at this point, you don't need a book. Right, <laughs> like an envelope. Here's, here's that letter <laughs> I was working on. You know, and it would be like, hey, open when you're sad, right? Open when you want to be better, I, right? I was just reading our list of uh, yeah, right? Together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another yeah. list, another list. Yeah, good so stuff. 
I've got a package. We're working on a package going out to, to Sister Freeman. All right. And I'm going to commit this week. That letter is going to be dropped in that package. Okay. That is my one thing undone. 240.2, my one thing undone, letter to Grace. Okay. Boom. Okay. I, right. I like it. Yeah. I, you, I check like me, it. you check you check me on that next next time. I will I, hold on. I gotta make a note here. I got letter to Grace and 240.2. No commentary. No commentary. No commentary. No commentary. Nope. It's, that, a, safe, that, it's a safe space <laughs> yes. right here. <laughs> let's change the subject. Right? Okay, let's do that. Let's change the subject. <laughs> I've got a guy you're going to meet tonight. I cannot wait for this conversation, Tyler. We yeah. got Sam Borquez coming to us. Sam lives here in Reading with his family. I met him through school. Uh, I, I, I worked at uh, the school where his kids went. I started hearing some things about his story, about his, about his journey. Started thinking, hey, maybe this guy is somebody I want to meet from yeah. the get go. If you look back on our early notes, yeah, I, Sam's name was on the early list of people. He was an early nominee. Right. And sure. so finally yeah. we are here and we, we we're going to have him uh, on the show and I, I can't wait to, to, to get where that's going. Yeah. I'm excited, man. We had a good uh, pre-show call with him this week and, and, uh, you know, just a few minutes, those are, those are really short and, you know, really brief, but, uh, he had some things to say that, that I think are going to be, uh, fun to explore tonight. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get him in here, I do have a question mm -hmm. for you right now. Like th this is nuts, right? Yeah. No one's talking about this, at least no one in my circle, but right now there are civilians orbiting this planet. Yeah. Civilians went to space last night. Yes. Right. So a billionaire funds it. Three other people get invited. There are four people up there. I don't know what they're doing, but they're up there. My question yeah. to you, Tyler Gould, yeah. is if a if a fully funded space trip yeah. fell in your lap, yeah. would you go? Um I, I, and look, man, I mean, there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna be like, you know what? I'm going to jump in all over that. I mean, honestly, yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, whatever, man. I mean, if that floats your boat, then, then you do, you do it, but I don't think I'd be jumping on it. You know, I guess what? I agree with that. I agree <laughs> with that. Okay. Okay. And here's where I'm coming from. Right. Yeah. I picture me dead <laughs> approaching yeah. the pearly gates or something. Uh -huh. I don't know if it's a pearly gate, uh, whatever's, whatever that looks like. And I'm going to have a conversation with, the God who made me and he's going to say, how did you die? He knows that. Yeah. And I'm going to report out. I blew up in a rocket ship because I wanted to go to float around in space. Yeah. That's kind of my thing. It's like, man, I got, I'm out. That'd be a bummer. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I mean, you know, I, there's look. just, there's bad answers to that question. Elective surgery. Dumb. Right. <laughs> you chose that and you died. Right. Right. <laughs> elective, elective trip to space. What's the point? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you, man. I mean, I, like I said, there's going to be a backlash from those answers. I, I think from our listeners, but I'm with you. I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, I've looked, uh, I've watched the science channel and it looked cool from my, uh, from my, <laughs> from my TV and uh, I got it, man. It's good. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, you know? Yeah. And I think, I, you know, I mean, uh, Again, I, 
I'm not sure what they're doing up there. Right. I mean, if you're a scientist, yeah. then you can do some science stuff. Yeah. I think if you're a civilian, you're just kind of trying to do like uh, somersaults and in, in yeah. And like I think that that would be fun and all for like the 30 minutes. And then maybe you eat the pudding, the pudding thing that you got to squeeze yeah. out. Right. In the tang, you drink tang. Cause yeah. that's what astronauts do. But then, then I think, yeah, like after about a half hour, you're like, are we going to land this bad boy or what? What are we, where are we at? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're going to see 15 sunrises and 15 sunsets because exactly. they're orbiting the earth. Like there's crazy math, but like every 90, every 90 minutes, I think they're orbiting the earth. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm look, you know what the thing is, the sunset, uh, at the beach in San Diego is gorgeous, man. <laughs> it really is. So, <laughs> you know, I'd probably want to be there. Give me my pudding. Give me my tang. Let me go pee. Cause I'd like to see what that, I'd like to see what that was like. That would be interesting. I mean, and Hey, 240.2 in, uh, in zero gravity probably is uh, a different. That's a wrecking ball. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a wrecking yeah. ball. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so with that, can we yeah. can we get Sam up in here? Yeah, let's let's let Sam in here and uh, let's let's get. I'd like to hear Sam. Maybe he's take an on, maybe maybe he's an adventurous guy, right? Yeah, you know what? And I I would like to think I kind of think of myself as an adventurous guy, but that just doesn't seem like an adventure I want to join. You know? Yeah, you know that's know. funny because like my my mantra right now yeah. is Helen. It's a Helen Keller quote that's life is a daring adventure or nothing, right? And I dig that, but here I am answering no to the question. Sam Burkez, welcome to the richest men in town. How are you? Thanks, guys. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Fantastic, I'm good. Man. Hey, I, we got we got a question. We we got some other. We had some some interesting interesting conversations before you jumped in, but we're going to start with maybe the not so interesting question. Okay. Right. So right now there are four civilians floating around in space. Right. A billionaire funded this thing. My question to my good friend Tyler Gould was. If a billionaire-funded trip to space fell in your lap, would you go? Oh, I would in a heartbeat. Really? All right. All right. I like My it. wife right. hates it so- that I would disappear to Mars tomorrow if somebody asked me to go just because <laughs> I, I want to do it. I, I like it, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so where does that – like? is it like a sense of adventure? Is it like uh, going where no man has gone before or what? I think maybe yeah, it goes back to being a kid and then reading about people who got to explore the earth and go to these places that their society or their civilization never got to before. And we have underwater, but we're not working on that. And so it's easy to think about going to space. And if I had the opportunity, I, I don't know, I think I could, would have to take it. I've had a very fulfilled life and I'm grateful for everything I have, but that's something that, wow, you know, hmm. it's, it's, it's something that's not checked off the list. man. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't even have it on the list. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't (laughs) know if there's a lot of people walking around this planet that's like, go to space, feel zero gravity, go to space, orbit around, see this, right? See the earth from the window. Like, "Mm." very slick. I think Sam's changing my mind. Yeah. Well, I'd let you guys go and I just eat the pudding and the drink the tang right from here. You know, like, yeah. (laughs) Sam, I, I was getting into like, I don't think that that's a cool way to die. Well, right? so cool. It's cold out there, right? But cool. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like that's I've pretty seen, unique. I've seen gravity in <laughs> space is pretty rough, you know? Yeah. It yeah. can be, it can be, you hit a pebble or something and stuff happens. Have you seen Ad Astra with um, Tommy Lee Jones and Brad Pitt? 
No, I have not. That's a pretty slow moving space movie, but it's got a really good story. It's got a father and son story in it, but that's some bleak space stuff. If you want to check out how space can be bleak. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we are on a, here in the home, like we are it. in a, on an interstellar kick. Oh yeah. Yeah. We recently, uh, so my son is, uh, he's trying to seize the day and he's got a list of movies that he wants to watch and interstellar was on there. And so uh, we uh, we pulled it up and watched it. Nice. I haven't seen it yet. I know I oh, want man. to, and I just you, haven't yet. Yeah, I have you, not either. Oh, no. homework! You guys yeah, gotta. You guys gotta. I guess so. No, you guys gotta watch that. It's it's got a it's got a pretty amazing story. Great cast. Very cool. And right. here's full disclosure: like way vulnerable, Sam. We just watched The Matrix for the first time. Oh wow. Wow. Well, at least you admitted it. You know, you're not one of these people that are going to now tell us all about the Matrix because it's fresh in your mind and I haven't watched it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. so just pretend, hey, hey, I watched this really cool movie. Can yeah, we talk about it? It's like, check sure. it out. Yeah, uh, that's like 20 years ago, that conversation. <laughs> yeah, I think that was like a year after Bill and Ted's, man. That's right. Right about that. I point. think so. I think so. That's a great thing about having kids is you get to watch movies again with them and see it through their eyes and you get to catch up on things that you missed for whatever reason, you know? Yeah, yeah that's right. true. That's true. Right. So uh, we, we did get in, we kind of geeked out on journaling, Sam. I don't know if you're a journaling guy. Or, 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 <laughs> do you? Yeah. All right. Bit. Can we talk a little bit about that routine and pattern? We were talking a little bit about some of the things that we do. I'm a moleskin guy. We've, we both have experimented with the monk manual. We had, uh, we had monk manual, Stephen Lawson, right? Steve Lawson. Yeah. We had him as, as uh, the founder of monk manual. We had him on the show. We're super into his, into his product. We're right now we we're through the 90 days and we're trying to kind of make it our own by incorporating some of his principles into into our journaling but but I'm always all ears for like morning routine I can't get enough talking about what that looks like and and what does it, what does your journaling habit look like Sam So mine is kind of a product of work I guess I I had a lot of reporting to do back and forth meaning I had to receive reporting and translate it to the people you know, ahead of me in the chain. And I had to take reporting from people ahead of me and translate it the other direction. And so every day of my life, I was getting up and I was reading some news in my community and the world. And then I would read the news in my business, you know, the actual business and then send those back and forth. So when I stopped working um, every day, it was just like, I needed something to do that's normal. And one of the things that I do is I write. And so in the mornings, my wife was getting tired of hearing me talk about the news because <laughs> <laughs> I was used to getting up in the morning and taking my daily news. And then as I talked to 15 or 20 people in the course of the morning, I would be able to, you know, talk about the news articles with different people. And so my wife being the only person I came into contact with most of the morning, just got tired of hearing that. And so I would just, I just started writing it all down. And at the same time I was taking philosophy classes. So I was able to take some of the things I was learning that are really hard for me to wrap my brain around and then just look for them in our world and journal about it and write it in a way that, you know, is in line with what I'm trying to learn. And it would help me learn that stuff. And then also see the world we have going on in a whole new light. So for me, journaling is also therapy. And in the mornings at night, in the middle of the day, it doesn't matter for me. If I just get something where I can feel it and I can, I get to something and I write it down and I write in, um, you know, I, I write electronically so I can just, no matter where I'm at, it'll just, you know, get into my notebook. Um, I like that. But there's something about reading my words the next day or later when my brain's calmed down a little bit and I was worked up over something and just seeing, you know, the things that we throw the hyperbole and the BS that we put into our lives. Um, 
and we aren't even thinking about it. And it's so easy to read it, you know, talking right now. I know I've missed some words that I've said. I, I won't even remember what I said, but when you write it, you go back and you read it, it's right there in front of you. You can't hide from yeah, it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like that with outside eyes, right? Remove yourself from the emotion that you were in, in that moment and look back and, 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 and how sometimes it looks like folly, right? Like you're in it, but like when you're removed from it and you look back, it's like, man, yeah, I'm way exaggerating here. Totally. <laughs> like way losing perspective on this issue or, or, or this situation that I'm going through in my life. Well, business advice I got a long time ago for emails was it was when emails were kind of new for our company. Hey man, after you write an email, don't send it. Just walk away for about 20 minutes and then come back and read it again and make sure. Cause if you were worked up at all, when you wrote that, you probably don't want to send it. And so that kind of turned into journaling. And like I said, all that stuff I do now came from work at some point, you know, where I just put it into my life. Yeah. I like that, man. Well, I heard some words I don't hear very often. It stopped working. Yeah. 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 How's life? How's life after stopped working? Weird. <laughs> it's very yeah. weird. And it's hard. You know, I, I retired from my career of 27 years in the food service business. Um, and I retired from that at 43. And so it's hard to put it into words because I don't feel like I'm retired. And at the same time, I don't know how, what else to say. So when people ask me, what do you do? It's kind of awkward. And now I'm doing a little <laughs> writing and I'm doing some consulting so I can say those things. But Really for me, um, my wife was the, I don't know what the word is. She was definitely the one that got us here. And I ask people all the time, what's your dream job? What's your dream job? And when people would ask me, I would joke around and say to be retired, I'm doing what I need to do right now. And at some point, my wife just laid out Reading to me. And she said like, you want to retire? Why are we here? We can just check out from the life we're in right now. And we can move to where my sister lives and your friends live. And we can just slow down and raise our boys for the last few years. They're home and, you know, be closer to our daughter. She's going to school in Salem. And so we sold our Bay area life and we moved here and it's been kind of weird. I didn't expect to retire at 43. It's not like I had some multi-year plan and we kind of, you know, worked through the years. We were in an opportunity where we bought our home that we sold to move here bottom of the market. And then everything appreciated after the crash and, you know, we, we just did okay. And we, we came here and we had lived within our means before. So when we transitioned here, it's more now about just living a small life when it comes to finances, you know, we don't, we have a boat and we go on vacations and we have nice new cars and those types of things, but we've planned for them all, or we've included them from past times in our lives where we were able to take some of the equity from that life, you know, and bring it in to this life financially and carry it over into things we do every day. And I think you guys know, going to work every day and commuting and buying the clothes you have to buy and the equipment you have to buy, it all adds up. And so our life went from about, you know, depending on the calculation around, it could be 70 to $90,000 a year when we were living in the Bay area. And now we can get by happy at 25, 26,000. You know, yeah. it's not as hard as people think, but we're in a special situation because we have no mortgage and we have no car loans and we have no credit card debt. And so yeah. we really just do save up for the things we need and buy them or, you know, go into savings and pull it out and do that. It's not, it's not like we have all of the bills that everybody else has. Yeah. I like that. I like that. It's living small, right? Small life. Yeah. Hey, uh, talk to me about kids. So ages, names, let's get so that breakdown. The boys are Brian and Jackson and my daughter's Alexis. The boys are 16 and our daughter's 22. Uh, they're 
they're all amazing kids in their own way. And they're all so different. Um, our daughter's a second year law student. She's only 22. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's uh, awesome. It's pretty overwhelming because my wife and I, neither of us are students. <laughs> you know, and so for our daughter to take on a career like that was really, it's a really big deal. Um, and she doesn't see it to her. It's just the natural progression of life. And yeah. then, um, oh, we got to, okay, we're going to, we're going to come back to that. I'll put a, I'll put a pin in that one. Okay. <laughs> and then, um, our boys, we have Brian and Jackson and Jackson is a lot of personality and definitely somebody who wants to be in charge of things. And you can see that kind of stuff in his personality right now. His career choice is he wants to be a cruise director on a cruise ship. And so <laughs> we're trying to do everything we can to facilitate that. Um, and then our other son, Brian, he wants to be a, a soldier. He wants to be, he wants to join the air force when he turns 18. And so we're doing everything we can to help him facilitate that. So all three of them are going in completely different directions, but it's to their strengths. And, and yeah. I think not working, it's costing us a lot of money because we lived in the Bay area. We made a lot of money. And so we could have put our life later in a different position than we're going to be able to now, most likely, but our kids are going to be in such a great spot. You know, I don't know if I would have seen the things that we're seeing now to make sure Jackson can go be a cruise director and Brian can go join the air force. We might've missed one of those things, you know? Yeah. So usually, usually we, uh, we take this in a little different, different flow, but if you're cool with Sam, if you're cool with me, just firing off some questions completely off the script. Totally. As a parent, I want, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on two things you just touched on. How do you line kids up with strengths, identify them? And then how do you, uh, do everything you can to facilitate without, you know, I think of un, unfolding versus molding, right? Yeah. So I've got a, I've got a, I've got a, a high school senior, and I've got a daughter serving a church mission on the other side of the country, right? And we're in this, like, there's maybe some things that I would love for them to experience. And maybe sometimes that lines up with the things that they have in their heart. And sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> how, how, are you facil- how are you empowering those kids to chase after those dreams that they might have in facilitating that? Well, I, I joke around a lot. My wife and I, our parents are not immigrants, but we, we are a lot like immigrant parents in the way we parent our kids. And so we we're pretty strict and traditional in the values that we try to give them as far as dating and television. And, you know, like don't tell anybody, but our boys are 16 and they don't watch rated R movies, you know, and it's (laughs) unless it's, you know, there's some action movies that are rated R that I've seen already, but so we, we've kind of had a life like that. And because of that, and we have dinner at the table every night, those type of things, we, we just have a relationship with our kids. But even having that relationship, I think if I was busy, I would have missed some of the markers. You know, like my son is really good at being outgoing and, and taking charge of a situation and entertaining people. And I may have seen that or I might not. And Brian, I mean, he's, I think I would have seen his because he, he's definitely going to be a very good soldier. But I mean... I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to put it in the right words. I guess, how do I identify it would be just spending time with them, you know, and, and making sure that I'm listening to what they're trying to say to me, not what I'm, I'm trying to hear, because I, I relate a lot with what you said about 
I guess like living vicariously a little bit through the kids, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but, you know, kind of living out my dreams. I'm like, I would love to be a lawyer, but I am not the student. My daughter is, I could never do it. So it's awesome that she's doing that. Right. And I think I can talk a lot and I have a good personality, but man, I don't know if I could be a cruise director. And one of my life goals forever was as a kid was to be a soldier and it just didn't work out for me. And so forever, that's going to be something I wanted to do, you know? And so I guess finding out how my kids are living a life I wasn't able to live that would be exciting to me. That helps motivate me to just keep wanting to ask more questions and find out what they're really into because my daughter wants to be a lawyer. I would want to be a litigator. She doesn't want to be a litigator, you know? <laughs> so just <laughs> learning those things about her personality would have never happened if I was leading the way rather than following behind her to see what I can figure out, you know? Um, yeah, that makes sense. Like yeah, absolutely. I like that, Sam. Sam, you talk about uh, traditional family values, the, the the values that you're kind of instilling within your home, right? And with your your kids, what what's where does that come from? And and what are you hoping their takeaway is from those values that you're <laughs> laying out in front of them? That's a hard one. So their takeaways. I hope they take away that I was trying to provide them with the opportunity to mature before they were exposed to things. They really just more than anything didn't need to put into the equation. You know, there's yeah. so many things that we expose our kids to that we can't help, but I think I can help the media content and the way that they socialize with their friends and not dominate it or take control of it, but just help, you know? And so, yeah. um, I'm sorry, can you repeat that question again? Cause there was two parts to it. Yeah, I'm just curious, you know, what, the, what you're hoping their takeaway is and, and what that looks, where does that come from for you? Like when you oh. made that decision that this is what we're going to do, where does that come from? My wife is from the Midwest and so her family's from South Dakota and, you know, they have, they have very traditional American values. Me personally, it's almost embarrassing, but I spent a lot of my childhood in front of a television screen. And so I joke with people, but I think sitcom moms really helped develop my what's right and wrong. I really do because I, my behind my ears are always clean and I have clean socks on right now, you know, so <laughs> that goes into all aspects of my life. So there were good things about television, but on that same note, there's so many things I was allowed to do because I wasn't really supervised as a child. And I was exposed to so many things as a kid that today would get people you know, like they would get children taken out of homes. And it wasn't that my parents were abusive or, you know, I didn't have drug addicts in my bedroom with me or any of those things, but just some of the ways I was unsupervised is kind of makes me scratch my head now. And so I'm aware of what can happen when you just leave children to wander around and, you know, grow into their own and that kind of thing. Right, and right. there needs to be a balance somewhere. There needs to be a, a give and take on that. Yeah. I but that. I think of the intentional effort that's required. I mean, living in a 2021 world, with children the age of your children, the fact that you're eating dinner at the table every night is a monumental lift. Like in my mind, that's, that's the, the amount of intentional effort that that requires. And for you, it's probably nothing because it's happened. And for me, it really, that really is a television thing because I ate dinner in front of the TV plenty of nights, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I, I love that though. I think that's, I mean, it's, it's important, right? Because, you know, it's that sort of left to your own devices, you know, what do you, that's key. right. Yeah. Right. What are you going to end up doing? And, and, you know, you, hopefully you make the right choices, but 
you know, without that guidance, I just, I think that's important. I commend you for that. That's, that's great. Well, and I've probably said this before, but Harvard can back me up on this. The single greatest indicator for academic success is not socioeconomic status of the parents. It's not level of college attained by the parents. It's the frequency they eat at the dinner table together. Hmm. Right. So you think of those little things that confound the wise. You think of the silver bullets to a lot of our society problems. The family dinner table yeah. might just might just be one of those things. That that's a scary. I mean, is that that's a, I mean, my kids are toast, man. Point, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Because like, but I mean, but, typically but we're standing on. around the table eating on our way out to a practice somewhere. You know what but I mean? Sam, so. Sam did touch on the magic that does happen by and, it, and whether it's the dinner table or. It, Magic does happen when you invest time in a kid. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, there's a program that I never get to take advantage of. Well, once I got to go to one of the dinners, but there was a program in Sonoma County ran by voices and they help at risk youth 16 to 24. So that's a plug for them. They are an incredible organization. And one of the programs they had was dinner. And it's because a lot of the kids in that age group in that program, they didn't ever sit at a table with a family and have a dinner. And so to be able to sit at a table and just have that camaraderie, but then have adults that they can ask questions to and just have yeah. that dinner atmosphere that for me drove home. Like, Ooh, this is why we do this. Yeah, and this is why we eat very cool, dinner at our home every night. But some of those kids don't know how to grocery shop or, yeah. you know, a lot of people will see homeless kids, 18 year olds, 20 year olds, and think like, why don't they just go get a job? Some of them literally were just never shown. And it was yeah. such a contrast to the way I was raising my kids at the time of my life. It just woke me up, you know? Well, in 27 years in the food service, you know, the magic of food. Oh yeah. People are eating and they're happy. They get quiet. You know, everybody's mad screaming and food comes out. Everybody just quiets down. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So, so Sam, when the invitation comes out, when I, when I reach out to you and say, Hey, I got this podcast called richest men in town. What, and, and I want you to be a guest. What, uh, what thoughts run through your head? First thought was probably, I don't remember exactly. It was probably something like, man, they must really need some people. <laughs> well, that's, that's sort of true, Sam. But, you know. <laughs> In all reality, I was really humbled because in my previous life, you know, living in Sonoma County, I had a big network that I had con, I just built up a bunch of networks or, you know, over the years of doing business in that community and it was several towns. So it just wasn't one. So I would be, I guess, not expecting it, but I would definitely not be surprised. But in Shasta County, I really haven't done much in the community. So I was humbled. It was really pretty cool to be asked. Well, we're, we're super excited that you're here and, and we're excited to kind of get into what makes you, you and, and share some of that with our listeners. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious if, if maybe we can, we can back it up a little bit. You've touched a little bit on your, your childhood and, and kind of growing up. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that and what that sure. looked like as a, as a young person and, and your family makeup? So my, my biological mom and dad um, got together really young. And if you do the math, you can figure out that I don't, I wasn't a planned child. And so my dad joined the air force right away and went to boot camp. And around two, we moved to California from Arizona. And at that time, so my mom's family, they're Irish and my dad's family is Mexican. And my mom's family comes from New England and they are 
pretty much nomadic people. They just kind of meandered up and down and all around. So we, we never really had, you know, some people have generational heritage where they were in this community for a long time. And so I moved around a lot. And then on top of it, my dad was in the air force. And so the beginning of my life, I definitely moved around a lot. And in fourth grade, I was in five schools. So, you know, that's how much I jumped around. Yeah. Um, And so those things like those aren't child abuse. There's, there's nothing traumatic, you know, outside of just having to learn to talk on my feet and that, that kind of thing. But my dad after, so we moved to California and then shortly after he took an assignment and went to um, England and he was in the air force. So he was there for a couple of years. And then when he came back, it was this, it was the same week. My grandfather died who was pretty much my father figure at the time. And then uh, my parents brought us to Washington. And then from there, they just devolved and they got a divorce. And from that point, my dad became a stereotypical deadbeat dad. And my mom was struggling because she didn't have an education and she was working under the table jobs and doing what she could. And so today, I mean, I still think she did her very, very best. And at the end, um, she ended up getting married and has a home. So I don't have to worry, you know, how her life's going to end up. But our values aren't the same. You know, we just, Mm -hmm. I just learned when I started working, I learned, I worked for a family and they taught me so many values in life that I knew existed. You know, I watched TV, but I was literally at sometimes thrown up against the wall and reminded what the values were. So it was different, you know, coming from my house where I was unsupervised and I had not always bad role models, but sometimes just no role model, you know, and people letting me do things that were bad. And, you know, my uncle was a drug dealer when I was a little kid and he sold pot. And I can remember being in the back of his van, learning how to sell pot. And I remember he had two apartments one time when I was about five years old and I used to run upstairs to the other apartment and go get the pot, come back downstairs and, you know, give it to himself. So that was the stuff I was experienced in. Um, So you can imagine growing up as an adolescent and a teenager, I was not right. The most upright person. And so sure. when I started working, it was because I just didn't like my home life. And it, it, I, it wasn't even bad feelings because by then I had gotten over the fact that my dad was a deadbeat dad. And um, my mom and I really weren't not seeing eye to eye at that point. I still had her value system and everything, but I just knew that I, I didn't want that life. You know, that just wasn't how I wanted to live. And I definitely wanted a family and I didn't want to raise my family that way. And a lot of my friends came from other neighborhoods. And so when I started working, something about it was just, it was a family and they treated me different. And even though my friends were like, ah, I don't work there. My mom at some times would be just, oh, quit that job. It's just a, you know, it's a dead end job or whatever. They, they took care of me in ways outside of money. And it just, it helped me shape my views on what I wanted to be because I knew where I was coming from. That wasn't going to end well if I just stayed on there. You know, I was born into a situation where usually people don't make it. I I started out minimum wage and a lot of people stay around that for whatever reason, but I had Mm -hmm. the opportunity through this family that was sending me to training and, you know, giving me coaches in the business world that I had no other way to get. Um, They put me in a place where I could do things in life. And so I just hung on to that. That was, was, that was kind of like my second family. Yeah. Was, was that, was, was that a, you know, a, a tangible feeling when, in, in the contrasting your home and the family that you worked with, or was that just something that, that you couldn't put a finger on and you just kind of were gravitated towards that? What was there, 
Oh, it was definitely, I felt it at the time. And I think, you know, my memories are shaded by my feelings, but I was, I had to be just a jerk to my parents, you know, because I was done with that house and I didn't want to be there anymore. And I did everything I could to let everybody know. Um, And I remember there was this one point where I was just going to leave just for good leave. And my mom said, if I went, she would go too. And she had been remarried at that point. And I wasn't so much rebelling against her marriage. It was just, I didn't want to be there. And so that gave me a gut check because, you know, even at, I was about 15, just about six. I was 16 by then because I was looking for a job. Um, but that gut check at the time was like, you know, that was one of the first times in my life where I realized mm, that's somebody else's life. You know, that's not my life. Mm-hmm. So I can just wait. And I did. I mean, I didn't stay home much. I Once I got a job, I was able to move around the world a little more because I had money. And back in the 90s, you could do a lot more things than you can do now without, yeah, <laughs> without identification sure. or any of those mm-hmm. kind of things. So yeah. I kind of, I, I made friends with people who were in their mid twenties once I started working. And like one of my good friends who I ended up being his roommate once I was old enough to move out of my parents' house. Um, he owned his own home, you know, and he was 26 years old and he went to college and he was an athlete and, you know, he was successful in a way. So I tried to put those kind of people in my life. And I did have friends who weren't like that. And I had friends that are still where they were then, you know, and I, I have people that I just won't contact because I know, I just don't want to know their story right now. And, um, nothing personal. I just, I've grown past that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I I've, I've always been looking for, you know, what, what makes my life better? Who can I surround myself with? And I've learned that sometimes the biological connections we have, they don't hold up, you know, they don't, they don't do things for you sometimes that they should. And if, if you're lucky enough to have the understanding that you don't have to go that route, I think you get to see the opportunities that are there in front of you. So I think the unusual thing about your story is sometimes that biological environment imprints things on you. Oh yeah. Right. Or imprints expectations or ways that you identify yourself. And the idea that you land somewhere in a teenage job and you're looking around and you're noticing something different and it's something that you want right like i mean i think that there's a lot of people whose story they might be your age sitting in different places who grew up with a background like you did and never got out right or didn't make a change didn't switch lanes and it was just like hey i'm going to take these bad habits that are coming you know i'm i'm hanging out yeah yeah, I think I think it's interesting too because I I think that maybe maybe you know I think sometimes in life, right, we have we have experiences that that aren't the greatest. And but but I think there's something to be said for being able to recognize it for what it is, right? And use it kind of as a launching pad as opposed to uh, a millstone that just kind of you know, just around your neck that you can't move with, you know, right. because I think it, it can go either way. So I, I just, I, I, I'm always, I'm always fascinated and I'm always maybe energized by that, by that story, Sam, that, that, you know, Hey, this is where I was and this is what I saw. And I could, I could identify some serious differences between the two. And this is where I, where I sort of had this gravitational pull towards this, uh, to this other one, you know? Well, the path of least resistance may actually take you to that lower road. Right? Yeah, for sure. Usually, for sure. Yeah, usually it does. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I don't. It's it's. I, I, I can't say I take any credit for the stuff that's happened in my life up to a certain point, because there's been plenty of times, especially my young life, where, like I said, I, I was pushed up against the wall and screamed out about decisions I made that were bad decisions that really weren't business related. You know, it was just yeah. don't don't mess this up, man. And so those literal shaking you up moments, I can fall back on those. But there's been plenty more where someone had just said the right thing at the right time and made sure. me go. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That's that's how I'm going to yeah. do it because that makes more sense to me right now. 100%. I can relate to that. I think that's important, right? That that sometimes it's just it's timing, right? Yep. You're in the right spot and the right word is said and that's for some reason permeates, you know, it penetrates and you're just like, "Wait a second. That's that's the thing." You know, that's When well, I think sometimes that's shaking, you know, shaking up a, a, up against the wall, Tyler. We talk about, you know, grabbing the face mask and yeah, you know, like yeah. rattling the cage a little bit. And I, it's almost more important, like not what was done or what was said, but the idea is that this person cares that much about me. Right. Right. Yeah. This person sees something in me that I don't currently see because of the choices I'm making. Right. And they care enough to actually intervene. Oh, some people just got fired. I got thrown up against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. What's the difference? Right. You're probably scratching right. your head like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Right. Right. So I'm, no, I, I'm, I was such a punk kid. I just, it was normal for me. I didn't care. Do you remember? So I'm thinking in that, in that family, in that teenage job, there's a hinge moment there. Yeah. For sure. And the, the funniest, the funniest thing about that hinge moment is it was on an even crazier hinge moment that was so irrelevant to anything. But I turned 16 in 1990 and it was so hard in my community to find a job as a 16 year old with no experience. And so it was 1991. It was March when I was hired and I turned 16 the previous August. So I'd been looking nonstop because I really wanted to get out of my house. I just, I just wanted money. And my mom came home and said I could use her car because there was a pizza place opening up right next to the new hardware store that was going in. And so I was like, all right, I'll go. But I had been rejected by so many jobs and so I didn't change. I didn't like brush my hair. I just put my baseball hat on and went. And I really think because of the guys that were opening it, they were jocks and they were just total frat boy jocks. And I showed up in a car I was driving and I had a baseball hat on. And I think I really, really that was think that's what got me hired. <laughs> and so that little moment and me just getting up off my butt, really, it was just because I was allowed to drive. So I just, you know, I just wanted to go for a ride, I think was probably my biggest motivation. But those things changed the course of my entire life because I did want to be a soldier and maybe that's where I would have ended up or maybe not, but my whole life turned out this way because of that. That's, in, that's incredible. So what, what it. was it about food service industry? Oh man. For one, I, I didn't, I didn't because, have an, ad- well, really quick, really quick, <laughs> Sam, yeah. we are obsessed with this idea of pathways, Tyler and I, in our conversations, some people land in a place and they plant themselves for 30 years. And some people land in a place and after a couple of years, it's like on to something else, right? Yeah, so I, right. when I hear 16-year-old getting a job and 27-year food service career, you've got my interest, right? So again, I, it's not, yeah, it's, I had no education and I had no safety net. And I knew I wanted to go to culinary school or I wanted to join the military. Those are my two things that I knew I wanted to do. Culinary school was so far out of reach because at the time, 
there were no celebrity chefs and there weren't culinary schools all over. I would have had to go to New York and go to Hyde Park and go to that school or go to Europe. And so I was really down on that idea because I just didn't know how I was going to finance that. And I also understood at that time because of television, that one way to step up your social stature in society is to join the military and you serve your country and you come out and you have, you know, you have more, you just have more available to you for people that had nothing before. And so that was kind of my plan. And then I got this job and my buddy who he was like a brother. We grew up together. We were roommates before I had my other roommates, but he was my first roommate and we were going to join the Marines together. And one day I came home and he just left a note and said, I had to go, you know, he was having problems. Just like, it was hard, you know, that time of life when you're by yourself, it's just hard. And so it was just him and I living in this little ugly apartment. And so when he did that at the time, I was thinking like, all right, I gotta get my stuff together. Cause I gotta get out of here. And instead I just leaned into the job and it was a family that was taking care of me and I felt it. And every time, you know, I would do something worthy enough, I would get a little recognition out of it, which was fine. But more than that, I would get more training. And I realized like, I'm not going to do well in college. I don't know how I'm going to get to culinary school. And so I just need to hang out here for a little while. And then again, because of television, I wanted my gold watch, you know, once, once you're in long enough, it's like, I want to stay for, (laughs) I want to stay for the whole time. And that's what I want to do. And then it became personal for me because so many people that not just, I was given the opportunity, but I was allowed to give that opportunity over and over and over to so many people. And it kind of drove a culture of us all working for each other. And it was really hard to even think about leaving, you know, in that world, it's, you hear like, Oh, food service for 27 years, same company. But I would sit at a table sometimes with people and they would say, so how long have you guys worked at Mary's? And I would say 22 years. Right. And the guy next to me is like 37. And the guy next to me is like 40, (laughs) you know, so it was just that, (laughs) that was the culture we were in and you just don't go, you kiss the ring and you stay forever. And um, so it really wasn't hard for me to, to stay. The other thing was I, there was a lot of stimulation. We did a 12 week group therapy course and it's, I'm not calling it that to be funny, but it really was group therapy. We had a psychologist and a psychiatrist and they sat at either end of the room and we went through a lot of emotional exercises as a team. And it was the owners, it was the administration team, and it was all of the general managers of the restaurants and the supervisors. And so it was really an eye-opening experience on, at the time I was in my twenties and it was just, wow, this is how people tick, you know? And so I'm learning a lot here and I'm, and I'm understanding that this is the kind of stuff that takes years in other areas to learn how to do. And I got these two guys sitting on either side of the room every day, answering every question I have. And so I, I loved it. And up until that point in my life, I really thought the word for therapist was head shrinker because that's how I grew up thinking, you know? And then when I got to see it in action, it just blew me away when you really could dig down, not just in yourself, but with another person and hear what they're saying a lot better. And I can, I attribute that 12 week course to being married for as long as I've been married. My wife and I have lived together now, 26 years. Um, and we've been married for 20. That is awesome. So I can, I attribute all of that to that 12 weeks because that made me understand that therapy is a good thing. And sometimes you have to talk to another person and that other person can help you figure your stuff out because they're not stuck in your story, you know? (laughs) So, um, it's, yeah. On top of that, like later, so later on, I became a supervisor. I was managing, you know, my little section and then I had my team and I had my restaurant and then I was given five restaurants. And then it's at one point I had 20 restaurants, but I had no education. I had no prior experience and everyone around me were the people that taught me what to do. And so 
I was lucky enough to go to the CEO coach and I don't know how much that costs at the end of the day, but he was pretty high caliber coach and he was teaching me business. And, you know, there was plenty of seminars I got sent to, and we got to meet John Lasseter. And there's so many things that contributed to me being a better business person that they paid for. But at the same time, it's helped me become a real person, you know, a really fleshed out person. Yeah. 20 uh, restaurants. What must that be like? Oh, it's fun. And now I have no idea how I did that. Uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> you started about six when people start waking up and you're done at about two 30 or three when the last person leaves until the alarm company calls you and three managers <laughs> haven't answered the alarm call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's wild. That's wild. Sam, can you talk, can you talk a little bit about, uh, about your wife, how you guys met and, and Oh yes. Yeah. Let's, um, let's go is, there for a minute. She's the greatest thing in my life. She's out of town right now. So I'm going to be really sappy. Um, <laughs> well, we make sure really... you get this right. Right. Cause digital is forever. Oh, so. that's fine. Yeah. She's, she'll just do the la 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 when she listens. Yeah. Anyways, but, um, <laughs> I, I really do. I love her so much. She, she, uh, the story that until we, we recently settled this story, but the story I like to tell is that she chased <laughs> me around because she did, she was way too young. Um, when I met her and she was a blonde and up until that point, I didn't date blondes and she was just too young. And my friend calls me. He's like, hey, I hired this girl. You should well, hold on. Hold on. Out. Like, I'm just admiring the fact that you had you had criteria or you had a filter. Or no. some so it, it was the 90s. Right. And like <laughs> the Cure and Depeche Mode and those kind of bands. Those girls were the cutest girls. And they all had black hair and velvet clothes oh. and that kind of stuff. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it really wasn't. I wasn't smart or had a, it wasn't any of that stuff. <laughs> and so <laughs> I came down and I met her and she was just young. And something was said on the other end to pump up the fact that she was going to meet me and I was going to meet her. And so for a long time, she was just waiting for me when I would show up at that restaurant for any reason. And at one point she became friends with my roommate's girlfriend. And it was, um, you know, pretty obvious that she was a part of my life at some level. And then eventually we just started hanging out and started dating for real. And I, you know, you guys are both married. Both married. Both married. Okay. So there's just, it's just that special thing that I can't even put into words that I just knew, you know, all of the, all the silly things I thought I liked about people before just wasn't the same. And no matter what's going on, she's usually the first thing that comes to my mind, unless it has something to do with my kids, you know? Um, and then in relation, it has something to do with her. So we met way too young. Neither one of us had very good examples of what a family should be like and how parents should treat each other. And, you know, her grandparents actually both sets though, after I say that were married for 50 plus years. So she wow. had that in her life and I know she's, she's got longevity. Yes. And so she knew that stubbornness from them and me, I had a deadbeat dad and a weird family life. And I, I'm a weird guy with a bunch of weird philosophies. And one of them is children don't ask to be born. And so I never wanted to give my kids a life that they didn't at least, you know, enjoyment's one thing to say, but you know, they have a good life. One that they could look back on and be satisfied at least the years that I had any kind of sway over what's going to go on with them. So um, we came together and we both had that, like that want to take care. She's a big sister. And she's a big sister all the way. So she's always not just a mom, but a big sister nurturing all over the place. Anything in our house that needs to be taken care of, she will take care of it if it needs to be taken care of. And it's not that we make that happen, but having that type of person in my life, you know, it makes me feel safe. It makes me feel good. 
Um, and now we've been together so long. It's a badge of honor, you know, to walk around and when people, how long have you guys been together? Wow. You know, I haven't even been alive that long, you know? So yeah. when I started getting questions from young girls, so being a manager in a restaurant, you work with a lot of teenage and then early 20 girls. And so when I started getting questions from young girls about, Hey, I'm having problems with my boyfriend. How do you talk to your wife? Like something clicked in my head and it made me feel good. Like, Oh man, I'm one of those guys. Like I'm a guy that people are going to go to about relationship <laughs> advice and, you know, and, and in that world, there's so many sleazy guys and I love some of these sleazy guys, but you know, they're always trying to figure out the angle on how to date a girl or do that thing. And it just, that was another point in life where I could see the contrast from like where I came from as a pizza maker, dishwasher kind of guy working in the kitchens. And, you know, you try to date the servers and that's how that goes to now those people are coming to me asking, Hey, what do you think about this guy? Do you think I should date this guy? Should I take him to see my mom? You know, those kind of things. And that helped me double down on my relationship even more. And then I got to start speaking at, you know, group homes or centers where kids who are having a hard time or people in that 16 to 24 age range um, were at and talking about family always resonated with them. So I could just be honest about having a hard day with my wife and how we worked it out and how it came together and what it means to be a dad. And all of those talks really helped reinforce what I have and why I'm grateful for all the things I have. And it's kind of like teaching when you teach something, I get a little bit better at it, you know? And so mm -hmm. when I'm talking about what I'm grateful for, it just drives it home. And over time, it's just now how I'm conditioned. <laughs> so I don't think I have a choice. Yeah. Well, what advice do you have for your, for your kids as they, you know, uh, your daughter's getting ready to, to be, become a lawyer, your, your son's going to be on a cruise ship and your other son's going to be the air force yeah. as relationships enter their lives. What advice do you have for, for them? I think it's different for each of them because of their personalities. Um, but really it's just be honest. You know, a lot of it comes down to communicate and be honest. It, it, I, I can't think of a situation that person in a relationship could have where honesty and communication won't at least put you on the path to fixing it. Yeah. Can I ask a question? This is personal to be, I mean, I, my background uh, growing up kind of, kind of like yours, uh, my, my dad is actually like, you looked him up. It would be the def, like the dictionary <laughs> definition of deadbeat dad, right? <laughs> never met, never met the man. So coming into fatherhood, I had that going on. I had that right. kind of script running in the back of my head. How has your relationship or your experience growing up with your father influenced the kind of dad you are now? Well, it's been hard because it's one of those pendulum swing things. I really want to be ultra involved in some things and realize like right now, especially my boys are 16 and my daughter's 22 and I can't get too involved or I'm going to stunt their development and their growth and the way they view the world and the freedoms I had are what helped me become independent. So, you know, I don't necessarily use anything my dad ever taught me or did in parenting my kids, but I, I've been a part of their life every day, I guess is what I took out of that relationship, you know? And so I text my daughter a heart and I tell her like, you don't have to reply, but you know, it'd be great if you just give me a thumbs up or something. So I know, <laughs> I know you get it, but I make sure to be in my kids' lives every day. And that wasn't the case for me as a kid. So that, that I think, like you said, eating at the dinner table, them just having to see my face, it may not make them better people, but I hope it does. So yeah. when is that, when is that door open for you to impart things? And when is it best? Hmm. 
keep that door closed and I'm listening. So with the boys, <clears throat> it's easier for me to kind of move that around, I think, because they are, we have that three guys in a house pecking order kind of thing going on you know and so some days i just gotta let them flex you know jackson will come home mad about something and it's funny because they work for mary's pizza shack and they literally do things that i wrote the manual on and so they'll <laughs> don't one of them will tell me a story they like, work in the same chain of restaurants that you right that you so the family yeah so real quick digression the family that i worked for was out of sonoma county and Charles charlu he, he's charles out here but charlu moved to Shasta County with his family because he wanted to do his own thing. And after a few years, they just missed restaurants so much that they opened up a Mary's here. And then now they opened up another one. So they have two. And then my boys got a job there. And so what happens is they'll come home and tell me a story and I'll say, okay, guys, well, here's what you got to think about. Like, no, dad, you don't even understand. You don't even understand. (laughs) (laughs) So there's some, yeah, there's some moments where they're just puffy and mad and I'm just, I'll let them be mad. That's fine. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. So there's those moments. And then like with my daughter, it's different because she's not home. And so if I push too far on her, she could just shut me out for a, a month. You know, she's a law student. And so she could definitely tell me I'm busy. Sorry. Can't help you. Yeah. Um, so that's a finer line for me, but right now across oh, my fingers, she's um, she's daddy's girl again right now. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Is there anybody in that restaurant uh, that you would like to honor? Oh man, that whole company has so i couldn't even if i started a list i would leave out more people than i included and that would kind of bother me there's one person actually who you guys had talked to me about something yesterday so i hope i'm not messing up the flow of the show it was um about some advice that i had gotten in life and the person that taught me the most about life it was a couple of conversations we had and he is a stereotypical Italian guy, just like a burly guy. And he'll tell you he's from New York and he'll tell you exactly what he thinks and why he thinks it and how you're supposed to do it. But he had a very soft side and he ran all the kitchens when I was a kid. And so he mentored me on how to do things like, you know, how to cook, how to mop the floor. And he would stand there and yell at the other people when they were giving me a hard time because I was his dishwasher. And so that transitioned into him just mentoring me in life in a lot of ways. And he grew up in the late sixties in his twenties were around all of the rock stars of the area era. And he also had a wife at one time and he had an adult child and he just lived a bunch of life. So he was a pretty awesome guy. And when I was 20, I was engaged to a different person that I'm married to now. And she was an awesome person and came from a good family and everything about her was fine. But Paul could recognize that I was an emotional child and it would have been a mess for me to marry any human. And so that was another time in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That was another time in my life where I got a gut check about, well, this is somebody else's life. You should think about this a little bit more. This isn't just you being dumb. And so his advice was think it through. And he didn't necessarily say it in one line and just dump it on me, but it was, you got to think life through. And his life revolved around turning an adult at 27 because some people he knew died when they were 27. And that became a bigger thing in his life than, you know, I I think I'll ever understand, but he used to caution me to not make any life altering decisions until I was 27. And so, um, thinking it through kind of something I use every day now. And some of the things that he talked to me about when it was in those conversations was in order to think it through, sometimes you don't know what you're thinking. And so you have to ask for help. And a third person can always give you a perspective that you don't have, even if you don't like it, it could help you think of things that you're not thinking of. And then the final piece of that was 
accept the help, you know, not, don't just ask people for help and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then do the thing you were going to do anyway. If you're thinking about something to the point where you need to ask for help, maybe you should accept that help and try it out. So he was an awesome guy. He really, when I was a kid, I used to romanticize mob movies and he just reminded me of a guy from a movie, you know, and he would talk <laughs> to me that way and he'd take care of me that way. And I just felt part of the group, but he was a father figure and he was an awesome, awesome guy with a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience. And, you know, he teaching me to think it through was a very good lesson that I carry. I, I use it today. I tell that to my boys probably three times a day. <laughs> think it through guys. <laughs> Sam, you've, you've talked about, um, you mentioned a, a couple different times about the opportunities to, to speak in, uh, you know, to, in group homes and, and some other venues. Can you, can you talk about where that comes about and it, how that came about and, and yeah. what your, your passion is for that? So the family I worked with, <clears throat> they did a lot of work with Hannah's Boys, Hannah, Hannah's Boys Center in Sonoma. And they have a really good relationship with that. And when I started doing stuff, um, on a bigger scale, I hit a point where it's, you know, you hit, I was there for 27 years and I would get stale sometimes. And so I would try to find things either through my coaches or a seminar they were sending me to that I could do to develop a different area. And at some point, one of the seminars made it clear to me, you can go give back stuff to the community because I was always thinking business, put money in the bank, get the labor down, get the sales up. You know, that was all I was doing. It was burning me down because that's not fulfilling at the end of the day, there has to be more to it. I had a great team and I loved working with my team, but I wasn't doing anything in my mind in the world. And so then I realized, oh, they work with Hannah's Voice Center. I can go find my own. And at the same time, um, we were bringing into our lives one, one of our sons. And so one of our sons is adopted and he was in foster care when I met him and I had no idea. You might, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress a little bit. So I, I, in kindergarten, when Jackson was in kindergarten, Brian was in his class and um, I had no idea. But the very first day of school, I had to turn some paperwork in and the teacher said, hey, Brian, you're the star student today. Can you take Jackson's dad up to the office? So he brought me up to the office and I heard all about his day and what he's going to do later and all those things that five-year-old will tell you, six-year-old will tell you. And then every time I dropped Jackson off in the morning, I would get to look at Brian's artwork and I would get to learn how to wash my hands because they learned the day before, whatever that was, you know? And so um, kindergarten ended in first grade, he went to another school and I didn't think about it. And then second grade, we were doing a remodel on one of the restaurants and there was a group of kids in there and they were from, um, I don't remember what school they were from. They were from a different school. And so I started talking about Jackson school and Hey, anybody ever heard of that school? And one of the kids came forward. He's like, I used to go there. And then I'm like, oh, Brian. And so we started talking and I sat down with them while they were eating. I'm like, hey, buddy, you should come over and hang out with Jackson. He's like, oh, I'm in foster care. Like, oh, man, that's crazy. And so I call my wife. I'm like, hey, remember Brian? Brian's in foster care. And so I think my wife says today that she knew at that phone call, like she knew, like, okay, <laughs> this is what we're doing. Right? We're going to figure this out. And so Brian became a part of our lives and through going through the certification to be a foster parent and, you know, learning all the things we had to learn and go to the places we had to go. I met a whole other community of people that helped at risk youth. And that's the, in Sonoma County, it was 16 to 24 was the age group that was primarily, primarily looked at in that category. So I got to work with those people and I got to go in and, you know, just sit and talk with kids and kids that came from places like I came from, or even worse, you know, and show them that, Hey man, I didn't go to college. Nope. 
I didn't see my mom yesterday either. I don't know where my dad is. Check it out. I got a job and people think I'm important, you know, so I could connect with kids on a way where my peers couldn't because they were going in their winery owners and they're mm-hmm. going in and they're talking to these kids who come from, you know, wherever they come from and they're not generationally winery owners. You know, they don't, they don't have that lifestyle. So there was that disconnect where I didn't have that and I didn't have to overcome that. So I really got excited about that stuff because it started making me feel like my job had more purpose. And then because of what I did, I was able to offer entry-level positions to people who didn't think that they could get a job. And I was also able to offer a team of people all over the county to give interviews if somebody had an interview and just needed to have some practice first before they went in and had that interview. And so like those kind of programs made me feel like, wow, I'm really doing something for my community. And then that snowballs into other opportunities and things to do. And so, um, I mean, I, I, no, I, I, I wandered I, pretty far in that one, but like, no, I like that a lot. I, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm curious too. Was that, you know, that, that desire to kind of speak to, to those, those young people, was that something that was pulling at you? Was that just yeah. a natural uh, uh, draw for you? Or was that, you know, intentional? Like, Hey, this is a group that I can identify with and I want to go there uh, and, and talk to these, these guys. Yeah. It really was more spontaneous. And I I do want to say it was a natural draw because once I started working with the kids and meeting the people that worked with the kids and not, not the administrators of the nonprofits and stuff, those people are all fantastic. And they do the people that sat in those homes day in and day out and watched people cry that they just met five minutes ago and, you know, gave them a meal and all the things that happened there. Those are the people that just day in and day out are heroes. And nobody thinks about them on a wide scale. And I'm not saying we should pity them and think about them, but they're out there. You know, there's some people and to have the life that I had and then had the life that I, I then grew into. And at that time, my wife and I made plenty of money and we lived in a very nice neighborhood in a very nice house. And I was feeling very secure in life and to be reminded of that stuff and see these people that are willing to work just as many hours as I am, you know, for not the same compensation I was making, it got me involved. You know, it got me wanting yeah. to go out and get my time when I could and do the things that I could in the community. Well, I dig that looking for fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, you were able to check all of your, your basic need boxes, but then as you're looking at that Maslow's hierarchy and it's time to start seeking that altruism and it's time to start seeking that purpose and how can I get back and ways that I can, you know, maybe maybe be of influence, maybe open a door, maybe give somebody the same opportunity that was, was afforded me. I mean, I think that those things are, are powerful, but I, I do believe they're rare. And that's what lands you on a podcast called The Richest Men in Town, right? <laughs> a lot of people are just like, no, I'm about money. Right. I'm going to get money and maybe I'll do that when I retire. Maybe I'll do that in a different season, right? But the idea is like the fulfillment doesn't come from the money. It doesn't no. come from the status. Yeah. It doesn't come from the address, right? Fulfillment comes from, I'm going to put my head down at night knowing that I help somebody. Right. Wait, we got to go back to kindergarten with Brian. Can we do that? Sure, sure. So like, you you know, talk about hinge moments. You don't have that walk with that kid and make that connection with with that kid, with Brian. Never. And then he just happens to be in your restaurant as a second grader, right? And now he's he's your son. He's in, he's he's a part of your family. Oh yeah. Like, talk to me about how that feels looking back on those moments. Looking back, 
it's hard sometimes to realize, oh, that was real life because he, like you said a minute ago, he is part of our family. And so day in and day out, the only difference is I get to tell him, Hey man, you know, for sure that you were wanted, (laughs) you know, that's our little joke between (laughs) us because other kids might hear it, but they don't know for sure, you know, (laughs) you know, so you know for sure. But other than that, he's in trouble like everybody else. He's rewarded like everybody else. He's, you know, he's a knucklehead like everybody else. And so it's, it's almost out of body when I look back sometimes and think about the things. My wife did so much work to get the paperwork filed and push us through. It usually takes a, a, a little, a year or so to become certified as a foster parent. And we did it so fast. We did it in months. And a lot of that was the people helping us get through the process, but a lot of it was also my wife because she's a very organized person and she's a big sister and she's a mom. <laughs> but none of that happens if you don't pick up that phone call when you find out Brian's in foster care. Yeah, exactly. We're a team. Yeah, of course. That's where the outer body comes my, in. My emotions went to an 11 and then called my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think too, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I'm just... You listened, I'm listening to you talk about, you know, your experiences growing up and, and, you know, some of the people that entered your life and and had an impact. And then I just see you sort of like re recreating that, you know, you, you're, you know, you've had people put in your life that have impacted your trajectory on, on one level or another. And then, and then here you are, you know, talking to a, a second grader or, or whatever and having that conversation and, and still, right. I, I think that that's, I think that's important, right. To you talk about out of body experience. I think maybe sometimes all of us should take a step out for a second and look back and just kind of connect how, how the, you know, those things come together that for sure people enter our lives, they impact us. And then, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that, Sam Borquez was out wandering around going, dude, I'm going to find somebody to impact today. It was just a organic, <laughs> you know, I had an experience. Boom. Here, here it is. I'm, I'm having another with someone else. I love right. that. I love that. You know, but I, I, I think of, uh, we talk about remembering all the time, Tyler. And yeah. I think that I, I saw this, uh, I saw this video clip the other day and they were talking about um, the example was a, a guy was a mountain climber and uh one day his belayer saved his life straight up saved his life he went through a couple of different uh a couple of different clips in the rocks and the the belayer was the only thing to save him and the question was asked how do you how do you thank a guy like that for doing something like that and the the mountain climber said you can never thank him enough. The only thing you can possibly do is always remember him. Right. And I think that, you know, I, I, Sam last night in the pre-show tonight, you've talked about gratitude and the importance of being grateful, but watching how you're living your life, that's demonstrating the gratitude, right? That's demonstrating the gratefulness. That's saying, Hey, I remember what you did for me as a 16 year old punk kid. And I'm going to somehow live my life always remembering that and trying to pay it forward. Yeah, totally. And I dig that. I dig that. Totally. Yeah, that's important. So Sam, I want to, if, if we can, I I know that, you know, living in, in Sonoma, uh, you know, you, you've uh, lived through some, some stuff. There's been some, there was fires in that area. Um, 
and then you come to Shasta you, County and and experience some other things. Uh, Sam, you know, can we can we go to that? Can we go sure. to let's yeah, let's can do we go it. to October good... October 2017. So yeah, Tubbs Fire took 5,900 homes out of out of Santa Rosa. We lived in Santa Rosa, and we lived right behind where the fire camp was. So we were pretty protected. There was water tanks and plenty of defensible space, and all of the resources were you know within two, 300 yards of my house. So I felt safe where I was, but I had just resigned from a 27 year career and the people were family. And when things were going weird, I was getting phone calls from managers because they didn't know who else to call because they couldn't get answers on some things they needed. And so I was answering calls. I probably shouldn't have answered and making decisions when I shouldn't have made decisions, but I got so wrapped up in that fire that my wife had no idea. She was out in Reading at that time. We were, our house was in escrow when the fire started. And so our house was in escrow. She was out in Reading because she was on the team that opened up the Sheraton here. And that's one of the things that moved us here. She was really excited about working with them as a nonprofit. And so she moved a good three weeks, I think, before I, I came out and I was wrapping up the house and then that fire started. And so I was on my computer nonstop because I still had internet connection and power. And so I was, you know, telling people where the fire lines were and where they could go for evacuation. And I had never experienced wildfire, you know, now I'm not going to say I'm an expert at all, but I definitely have some experience with wildfire. And so at the time I was so freaked out because of all my people. And that's how I felt. These are my people and there's nobody taking care of my people. So I was wrapped up in that. And then we came here and they were left to deal with the business in a community that had to deal with all the closures and the fires and all the things that people disjointed and all over the place. And I was living a happy life. I had bought five acres in the country and I had a tractor and a chainsaw and I was running around, you know, having my fun, but I was so guilty. Um, and then eight months later, we had the car fire. And I remember when that one went down, my, it was funny moving here because I was more cautious about fire than the people I knew here. And I was talking to my brother-in-law and he's just like, man, you're it's okay. Just it's fine. It's fine. And my nephew was out by whiskey town at, at a school, at a summer program for school. And I saw some of the planes flying over and the helicopter go over and I started smelling things. I'm like, okay, where's Paxton? You know, <laughs> I'm starting to get nervous. I'm like, it's fine. Meanwhile, they are freaking out and they're going to go get him and all that kind of stuff. But I thought they're just like, no, don't worry about it. And so I was pretty sure we're going to be fine because I've been clearing my property and I have my chainsaw and my hose. I'm going to be great. And my house was made of tinder and kindling. And so I was getting it wet and doing all the things that people tell you you could do. Right. And I was doing all those silly things. And I was walking my dog and looked up on the hill and could see the fire just like coming up on the hill. And we had a travel trailer at the time. And so I woke Tess up and I just said, we got to go. We got to load some stuff in the trailer and we just got to go. And so we did it. We, we were lucky. It was like two in the morning and we had a few hours to load everything into the trailer that we wanted to take. And we left and I left my trailer at a friend's house and we went to Sonoma County. And then um, we found out that we had lost our house. And so at that moment, like, Leading up to that moment, I was a wreck. You know, I was just nervous. People talk about PTSD around the fires, and I don't know if everyone takes that serious or not, but it's some serious trauma when not, not even losing your house, when you go through something and you have a situation that's out of your control. I, I didn't lose anything in Santa Rosa, but that was so traumatic for me. And we were in traffic on Farmer's Lane in Santa Rosa, 
And my wife was on the phone with her sister who had a friend in the fire department and went to our property and just said, it's total loss. Everything's gone. And I was just whew, so calm. And it was because I knew, okay, now I just call the insurance company and, you know, somebody comes and cleans the property, I guess. And, you know, cause I had friends that lost their home in Santa Rosa. So I kind of knew what happened next. And, but at that time I knew what happened before that time, there was just a fire over the hill. And I don't know if it's going to crawl that hill and what that's going to do to my life. And so I do better when I have something to do. And at that point I was putting my life back together and it was really freeing. And I think if I hadn't had the Santa Rosa experience for sure, my experience here in Reading would have been completely different, but I didn't raise my kids in that house. And the memories that we had in that house were only eight months old. And what we did lose was the material, but I mean, except for the printed pictures and the art that our kids made and, you know, some of the things that we had collected that we thought we were going to keep for our life. It's just, it's just stuff. And all of the memories we have, we still have. And because of journaling, I have a lot more memories because I make sure I always take pictures, but I make sure now that I write down so many things. And so, you know, if I ever want to go back and remember what I was thinking or what I was feeling, it was written down somewhere. And I, I, every once in a while, I miss some things, you know, like, ah, I, I remember I had one of those and I won't buy it again because it was just something, you know, and one time I had, I, so I, I used to have the Zippo lighter and I was a fanatic about it. And I carried it everywhere with me, even to the point where my wife took me to Boston one time to watch uh, a Red Sox game for father's day and coming back, they wouldn't let me take my Zippo on the plane and I wasn't going to get on the plane. And so they offered me, <laughs> they offered me, they were going to, they shipped it back to my house for me. And so like, I was that weird about it, but I thought I lost it in the fire. Cause it was just a memento at this point in my life. I didn't, you know, I didn't care about it anymore, but it was one of those things that I was going through a box one day, that, just something that we had on the trailer and it was sitting in there. And so those moments sometimes will get you, you know, or going outside on an orange day, sometimes the wind will blow and just, whoop, Oh, that's, that's rough. You know, it's the smell of a wildfire is just a little bit different than a campfire, you know, those kind of things. So, um, overall, it's really helped me have a grip on what's important. We do have materialistic things in our life. You know, we, we go on vacations that people might think are a little bit over the top sometimes, but I don't care about the things. I definitely don't care about the money. I'm a very pro-capitalist person. And I try to explain everybody that I believe that's where a lot of the opportunities come from. And I hate money. Like I really, really, really don't like money. It's one of the most useless and craziest things that we've ever let ourselves believe is very, very important, you know? And so that really drove that home. And, and since I lost all of my material possessions and I realized there is a system in place as far as insurance goes, and, you know, there's bureaucracy and things that happen in our government, but it's generally set up to, to get people to where they need to go, go with the flow, you know, and do the things you're supposed to do. And things will work out okay. And that gave me a little bit more confidence to continue doing the right thing and continue living my life in a way where I want to do what's right because tomorrow I don't know what's going to happen. And if I've done what's right all along the way, when my house burns down, I just call the insurance company and they put me up on a house for a couple of months and then I start my life again. You know? It's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can, I can tell you from, from pretty close quarters as a superintendent, of a, of a school district that was impacted wow. by yeah. the car fire. Uh, I was blown away. And this is where, uh, this is where your name was written down on, um, on the future podcast list. Because when I, when I met you, our school was mobilizing to help campfire victims. 
in paradise. Right. Uh, we had recently been impacted, so we knew uh, we knew what schools were going through. But to feel the Borquez family having recently lost their home in the car fire and had family had friends impacted from the Tubbs fire, you guys being first in line to help with the campfire really impressed me. And I was like, okay, that I need to, I need to meet this guy. I need to meet this family and I need to extend number one, extend my appreciation to them, but then just figure out how, right. How can you be in a place like, like I'm hearing from you, you heard that your house burned down and you felt calm. I had, and you felt, I knew what to do next, you know, and you felt like it was, you felt like it was freeing. Yeah. And that perspective, you know, like we ask people all the time, you know, what's something that you're holding in your life is truth that you learn the hard way. And we only learn through pain sometimes. Oh, right. Yeah. And yeah, that was, imagine, that's impressive. I got to imagine having that, having, experience the fires in Sonoma and having people close to you go through that same experience that sort of maybe uh you know gives you some sort of perspective right as mm-hmm. as you as you lose things uh and that's 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 just wild Sam well and so um, many people so many people would have that experience if you plugged in other people into that you would get questions, you would get bitter, you would get, why is this happening? Why do bad things happen to good people? Right. I don't hear that. I don't know if that was a phase maybe you went through. No, I, I, I just never, I was a little bitter after Santa Rosa and it wasn't so much about my own experience, but you know, I had friends that lost their house or people that were displaced and couldn't get back into where they were. And you know, you get a lot of the same things I heard from people that were being negative here, you know, and, I, so I understood it when it was going on here during the car fire, but yeah, I don't know. I just, it doesn't do me any good in my life to wallow in the things that are bad. I've had a lot of bad things happen in my life. And if I just chalked them all up or stacked them all up, then they would be completely overwhelming, but you got to push, you got to find the light, right? You got to find the lemonade and the lemons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, I, 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 I appreciate that, but not everybody does. Well, not everybody watched too much TV and read <laughs> yeah. philosophy. So this was all this was all because of uh, the so, Cosby uh, Show. Yeah, Brady. I don't know about the Cosby Show. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Beaver, uh, Brady Bunch. Yeah, any you know what know. any any sitcom from the eighties really. I was yeah uh, yeah. yeah. Who knew? Maybe yeah. there's a school curriculum out there we can develop. <laughs> Maybe eighties uh, eighties sitcoms. I would I, love to I'd teach kids up, how to man. communicate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, you know, get, given, given that, you know, I mean, we've, we've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, uh, some of the experiences you've had as a young person, you know, you reaching out to others and then going through these experiences, what, what gives you hope, Sam? Well, my kids, that's hopefully not a cliche answer, but the reason my kids give me hope is because they are behind the millennial generation and they are the millennial generations behind us for sure. But I look at history and I see my generation was talked about. I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer and I was lazy and whatever. And I am lazy. I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to do things. Um, so I fit that mold, but somehow we made it. And then the millennials are supposed to be such a mess. And I think they're doing great. 
And then the kids behind them, though, they learned a little bit more because I think their life's had more friction. Like they've had more things pushing on them, whether it's understanding that screen time at a big amount's going to be bad, even though they won't admit it all the way or something. I just see a strength in the younger kids now that they're going to start pushing us out of the way. You know, they're going to start moving us and doing the things on their own because, you know, my son, I joke a little bit, but it's true. He opened a publishing company because he can go online now and he can just create a publishing company and start pumping books out. Nobody's going to stop him. And if he sells one, it's profit. And that's the mentality they have versus I got to work my way up. I got to do all the things they can just jump in and do it. So I feel like as long as that generation that's coming up now gets to learn that balance, like you have to put the practice in if you want to get there, but yep, you can just jump right in and do it. You don't need any permission. You don't need any certifications. You can just start if you can do it. You know, I think that gives me a lot of hope for the future. I just hope my hope is that something comes along soon and gives kids that balance, you know, and shows them that that hard work is necessary. And there's a new way to communicate because we have a new technology and we have, it's so fast to communicate now. Whereas before you could think about stuff for a while and now it can just come right out and it's out. Like you said, it lives on the internet, usually lives on the internet forever and you're there with it. And, you know, I think the younger kids, my kids at least, and their friends seem to understand that a little bit better than some of the people that were kids when, you know, some of the social media stuff was just starting out. And I would see things at work, people doing things, getting themselves in trouble for, for silly reasons they're learning. And so that's human nature. You know, humans get something that they can't handle and they adapt to it. And then eventually it becomes part of what's going on. And I'm really, really optimistic about young kids right now and what I see them doing. Well, and so many of the constraints that you and I see, it's because we're old. Yes. (laughs) And it's a, it's a construct in our mind and it's not, it, they don't see it. They don't see the constraint. The, the funny thing about that for me is not that long ago, people only lived to be 35, 45 years old. And so right. the kids coming up got to come into power and they're the same kids, but now people are living to be 90 and they're still working. Some of them, you know, so <laughs> right. you don't get to push them out of the way and come up into your own. And I think that's a lot of what happened with the millennials is they wanted to come into their own. It was time and we weren't getting out of the way quick enough, you know? Well, Hey, so uh, do you have the name of the publishing company? We'll drop it in the show notes. And uh... I can't share it because he got so mad. If you want to go on my Facebook, you can get it. But if I said it here, he would be so mad because he's like, dad, <laughs> that was just a test book. Dad, don't show people that book. <laughs> well, you know what? Richest man in town would love to get a publishing deal. So maybe uh, we, yeah. yeah, he'll do it for you. <laughs> we'll have totally to talk to it. him, man. <laughs> I love that idea of friction though. Right. Cause that yeah, is how, that is how strength is developed. Yeah. You know, Break we're your leg looking and at it like, so many people want to remove the friction for these kids and they want to bubble wrap them and they want to, you know, but like, that's how they're developing the strengths that are going to be unique to their oh, yeah. generation. They're going to oh, solve yeah. the problems that we're causing right now. Yeah. I think if we can give kids good boundaries and they just let it run free in those boundaries, they'll be a lot better off for it. And yeah. we're smart enough to do that now. We understand. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Boundaries. So can I, can I just ask about Fenway? Oh Yeah. How, how, how is it? Is it everything they say it is for me? So I'm a weird fan. I, um, I grew up with my, my mom's family's from new England. And so Rhode Island and my uncle was super Red Sox fan. And so that stuck because as a kid with not a lot of positive role models, my uncle was a positive role model in my life, but he lived across the country. He was from Rhode Island, but he was Red Sox fan. And so that kind of tied in and I just became a Red Sox fan and being in California, that was weird. And being in a time where the Red Sox weren't ever going to win anything ever, 
that was weird. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just kind of doubled down on that. It became part of my identity forever. And my wife, I, you know, my wife is amazing. And so there was one father's day where we were just doing better than we had been previously in life. And so she booked a flight to Boston and she worked for a hotel at the time. So she got a really, really, really good rate. And we get to stay at um, the Fairmont in, in Boston and go see a Red Sox game and, you know, live a little fancier than we really were at the time. But yeah, it was pretty great. It was That's it's awesome. pretty great. Nice. That is awesome. At this, at this point in time in your life, Sam, what are you afraid of? Man, electricity. It's uh, it's scary. You know, getting shocked. The things. <laughs> sorry, the things. I'm, I'm right really, there with you, man. Do you do, right do, you do a lot of do you do a lot of appliance repair? No, or? I won't. I, there's so many things I'll stick my stupid head into, but I I don't like electricity. You will fly to space. I will fly will to not. space, but as long as I don't <laughs> I have to rewire anything. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there's gotta be a story there right have you been if you if you felt that or you oh, just always I, so here was one time at my aunt and uncle's house i don't remember why we were rewiring things but we took the cord off the lamp and wired it to i think the television or something and uh plugged it in and it blew out all of the circuits and so that was a pretty good shock another time was when i was a kid i found if you hold the coaxial cable that comes in for cable and you plug the tv in at the same time that'll last for a while <laughs> so there's a couple of things like that have happened to me in my life where I'd just rather not. Those are some nuggets that. that our listeners are going to need to latch on to, man, for sure. You know, yeah, uh, you know those little those football things, games? Because those were things nine happen volt? by accident all the time. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the nine volt battery football games where you're a little green dot? Like, doo, 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 doo. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So my mom wouldn't buy me a battery, I guess. And so I cut it and I wired it to my lamp and I plugged that one in. Once <laughs> and it was so, yeah, that was that's why I don't like electricity. <laughs> I'm not a fan. Is there anything not so literal you're afraid yeah, of? Yeah, some, some things I'm worried about. You know, I, I'm worried about in general, and this is a, you know, big in general, but our society, Western society, America, maybe, we are just so selfish, caught up in our own stories, um, willing to be divided over the littlest, silliest things. And I'm worried that technology's moved so fast that people aren't watching quick enough to catch up. You know, like I said, I think people can adapt to a lot of things, but I don't blame technology for where we are. It's just, we got a massive power tool and nobody showed us how to use it. So we're running around the planet doing silly things with it, you know, and somewhere along the line, someone's going to come along and help us figure out how to use it. It's like the greatest American hero. Do you remember that television show? Oh yeah. Yeah. We got the superpower suit without the instructions and we're just, you know, (laughs) so, um, I'm really afraid of that. And at the same time, I'm excited by it. And I want to be a part of that later in life, you know, helping people figure out how to communicate and do the things that need to be done online. So that's why sometimes if you bump into me online, it looks like I'm picking a fight with somebody in a news article or something. And I really am because I'm trying to find that commonality that we have. And I want to show people that I can disagree with you and we could be friends at the end. Watch this. Oh, that's a novel concept right now, right? Absolutely. We can disagree and be friends. Yeah. 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 So a lot of my friends think I'm super political now and I'm really not. It's just the easiest pool of people to jump into and, you know, get them to really start talking about their feelings because for a minute they were just talking about something silly, you know, and then you get to yeah. talk about their feelings and, Oh, we're both people. Right. We're both people, man. Yeah. So, so I want to get into this. I, uh, I want to get into this. How do you want to be remembered? But let me preface that question with, with a quick little story. One of my heroes, one of the guys on my Mount Rushmore is a, 
is a guy named Paul Chamley, right? Paul Chamley is my wife's, uh, my wife's uncle who passed away a couple years ago, uh, suddenly, right? Living his dream, uh, being a grandpa, going on on a walk with his, with his wife and seeing a beautiful sunset. And the wife goes into the house and he goes to open up a garden hose to water some plants and boom, right? That's it. Wow. Yeah. Devastating to everyone that loved Paul and a whole community loved Paul. Well, uh, Saturday, fast forward this last Saturday, uh, I got a docket of yard work I could do. I got a docket of college football I can watch. And my wife comes and says, hey, I got a list of stores I need to run to. Do you want to go? And being a smart husband, I said, yeah, let's go. I'll I'll pal around with you and we'll go go shopping on a Saturday. Like crazy stuff, like Costco on a Saturday. No one one does that, right? It's just a recipe for disaster. So we go through and we do all these things. Well, as we're finishing up, she gets in the car and we're driving and she says, thanks for being my Paul today. Mm. Because Paul did that. Yeah. And I had a moment, right? I feel it right now. Just even talking to you guys. I had a moment where it's like, all right. All right. That's an indicator, right? That I made the right choice that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm following some good footsteps. And then as it just so happened, uh, Paul Chamley is buried in the Gridley um, Cemetery, small town, Gridley, uh, about an hour and a half south of where I'm at. Well, as, as it just so happens, life asks me to go to Gridley for a meeting on Sunday evening, right? So I get out at five o'clock and I pull in, turn left, and instead of getting home, I pull into the Gridley Cemetery. And I, I go find Paul Dennis Chamley's uh, uh, tomb, tombstone, which, by the way, says, chose my mate, love my choice. Mm. Right? That's yeah. pretty classic. But I, ta- I, I, I just take a bended knee and I just, I promise, I promise Paul that uh, I'm going to try to be better. Right? And I thanked him for raising the bar. Right? And then I took a picture of where I was and sent it to his wife and said, Hey, just, just checking in with Paul, making some promises to try to be as good as he was. Um, it, to me, that's, that's how I want to be remembered, man. To, to think um, Tyler and I frequently talk about this thought on the, on the program where there's two deaths, right? There's one where you die. And then there's one where people stop talking about you. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. We talk, about, we talk about how to live a life where it reverberates for a long time, maybe even for eternity, right? That echoes where generations are talking about, talking about the way that we maybe lived our life. So with all of that being a preface into a question, Sam, how, as you think about your life and as you think about the life that you're living how do you want to be remembered? Well, <clears throat> that's a hard story to follow. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, um, who I try to give back, you know, I shared with you guys a little bit of the ways that I've just went out in the world and I tried to give back the opportunities that were given to me. And 
I don't know how much change I'm affecting, you know, day to day, but I just hope I, I have a good feeling that my family, my kids, that they will remember me in the ways that, you know, make me feel good. But I hope that there's someone somewhere a long time from now who is using my advice and maybe they don't even know me, you know, they're just using the advice that I gave to somebody. And to me, like maybe I could write something a hundred years from now that somebody wants to read and they find it interesting and they can use that in their life. You know, it's those kind of things where I just, I don't necessarily want me to be remembered as just the things that I'm living my life for. It would be more fulfilling for me if my name was forgotten three days later after I passed, but the things that I'm trying to get done, just keep going, you know, no matter what those things are, by the time I'm, I'm finished, just the things that I care the most about that I believe the most in just keep on going. So it's not for nothing. How do you keep those beliefs in, in this 2021 world we're, li- we're living in? Well, I actively go out and I find people that are willing to tell me I'm wrong. And I do that a little bit because I learned that that's the scientific method. You know, when you got something that you think is right, you just got to break it. And so I don't trust my brain. My brain lies to me more than anybody I know, or at least anyone I can cross check. And so I'm constantly going out in the world and just sometimes confrontational, sometimes, you know, sneaking it into a conversation, but looking for people with different views than me, not always opposite, just different and seeing if I can learn something from that. Um, or solidify what I've been thinking. And more times than not, I think what it does is it, it makes me realize I wasn't thinking something through all the way. And I got a new outlook on something that I can apply to so many different ways in my life. And that just pushes it forward. You know, it's that snowball. It just keeps going. Mm. I love that, man. Talk about uh, friction and, and right. I mean, just creating some for yourself to make yourself seeking it. Right. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. One thing about all the hypothesis, the hypotheses, hypotheses that we have, they were walking. I think it's, I think it's sisses. Yeah. Hypothesis. Hypothesi. (laughs) (laughs) But think about all these things that we have. Right. And and we say, you know, I frequently say that, uh, you know, I think our life will be richer if we throw question marks where we have periods. For yeah, sure. You know? and, yeah. And, and, and question, question everything. And I believe that there are answers. Yeah. You know, like you said, there are truths that will hold up to the test. There will, right. there will be things that you're carrying around that you can throw out in conversation and it comes back and it's like, yeah, two plus two is four. Right. Yeah. So Sam, we have loved the time that we've had together and I love, I love connecting and I love some of the nuggets and, and the lessons from, from your journey. We ask every guy, every person, man, woman, we haven't had children yet, but uh, we've asked every peop, every person that we've had on this, on this program, we ask, uh, we always close with the same question, right? Uh, one of our heroes is George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. And we love the, uh, the irony of his life. We love the, the wrestle and the struggle and the ugly and the beautiful. And in the end, we love that end where he's just on a bridge and he wants to live, right? He's seen things a little differently. Right. I think in our time together, you've helped us see things a little differently. Um, you know, he, he comes back and his little brother raised the glass and toast to George Bailey, the richest man in town. And we, we love that ah, because he's not even close, right? <laughs> his life is kind of a hot mess at that moment. But um, so we, we love to get your thoughts. So to you, Sam, what does it mean to you to be considered the richest man in town? 
I don't know. The goal, I think, to be the richest man in town for me, because I, I don't know enough people in this town yet to say where I fit into the hierarchy. But the goal for me <laughs> would to be, it would be a. So to be rich, you have to have a lot of something, right? And something that's considered a value. And I believe that in order for something to have true value, it has to be inherently good. And there has to be a, a, just some quality in something that makes it inherently good. Like the love I have for my wife, you know, there's good things that I get out of that just because it exists and it doesn't matter, you know, what else is going on in my life. That's there for me. Um, but to use that same analogy, you can use, have excess in something. And so there's people that, you know, me sometimes too much in love with my wife, you know, and then I'm lacking somewhere else. Cause I'm not doing the things I need to do to take care of my kids or my other relationships or whatever goes on. Um, or if I'm not taking care of that. Right. So I have to have balance. And so I guess for me, the answer would be, you would have to be a balanced person to be the richest man in town. You would have to have no excess and no lacking. Mm. I love that answer. Both of those yeah. very counter to the times that we live in, right? Where we can literally talk about someone's feasting across oh, yeah. the street from someone who's famine. You know, that's a good way to put it, because if you look at the natural way of things, um, you know, the way the universe works, whatever your beliefs are, the way things should go, it's, it's, it's a balance. It's not one or the other. It's always a balance. And so you're right. Look at our society is out of balance. It doesn't matter what side you sit on. It's out of balance. And yeah. And I, I'm probably, thinking of actually, I'm thinking of a scene from another Christmas movie where uh, a Christmas carol, right? And Scrooge, when he meets Christmas present. And they sh he's got those, those, those dark-looking children under his under his robe there, where he talks about need and want. Yeah, and be careful with those, right? Be careful with need. Be careful with want. In a state of balance, where I'm in, I'm in neither. I'm in right. I'm I, I'm not in a, a state of need, and I have everything I could possibly want, right? And from there you're in a really good place to live, live out your life and do some amazing things. Dig well, that. Yeah. It's, it's great, man. Sam, it's been fun. It's been, yeah. it's been a blast. I, I, I love the lessons taught tonight and, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to get to know you and uh, I'm grateful for, uh, for who you are and uh, the life that you're living and, and uh, just super grateful that, that we'll be able to share your words with uh with our listeners i mean it's been it's been a ton of fun this has been great guys i'm so honored and humbled and just appreciative that you asked me to do this it's really great it was pretty good therapy to sit in a room all day today and think about what i was going to talk about too <laughs> it was pretty well good. i just want to i just want to think that uh i just want to thank that mary's pizza shack that brought you on as a 16 year old kid mm. right oh, me too. i mean always like giving giving someone a chance yeah giving someone a chance and then they prove you, they, they prove they, they have merit and let's give them another chance. Let's give them another opportunity. Let's give them another opportunity. And voila, you've turned into a pretty fantastic guy. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much for letting us in. Thank you for sharing. I know it's a little, it's a little tough to, you know, walk us back and share out some of those things that uh, have made you, you, but uh, I really appreciate the look back. Thank you. Guys. Been awesome. Thanks, Sam. Have a good night. Thank you. All right. My big brother George, the richest man in town. <laughs>